I think the best kept secret about this church is that the confession is always better than the sermon. And so I want to just thank our church for the way that you respond to these opportunities to worship and to share your faith with others. It's uh, It says more about our church than most things, I think. And so thank you for being transparent, being honest. Thank you this morning, uh, SK. Uh, as you know, we're in a, a series right now in which we're looking at the book of Esther. And in the last couple of weeks ago, I said that one of the reasons, I think, that people put so much stock in the Bible's depiction of the afterlife is because the Bible is so honest about the world that we actually live in. It's so uh, truthful about the human experience. And when you open up the book of Esther, you see why. Because in the book of Esther, very plain, very matter of fact, it reveals corruption in politics, in, in the human heart. It reveals a tendency to strategize, to wound and, and uh, hurt others. Uh, there is clear uh, uh, genocidal ideation. Um, men and women are objectified and uh, mutilated for the purposes of others. So it is a brutal world that the author of Esther presents to the world, and very similar to ours. Not once is God mentioned in all of the book of Esther. And so in, in a real sense, this book is very relatable for us as New Yorkers, very relatable for us as, as modern people. And so we've been calling this series through Esther Between Two Worlds because we live in the tension uh, between the real and the ideal. Uh, there's a deep sense in the human heart that the world is not as it ought to be. Uh, oftentimes we think this should not be the way, and we may not have a better idea of what it is, what is the way, but there's a deep unrest, a deep um, unrest that this isn't, this isn't it. Uh, C.S. Lewis very famously says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is, is that I was made for another world. And so we're going to be looking at this passage today. And so with that in mind, just would you, as I open up to Esther 5, just open up your, your minds, your hearts as we, as we listen and enter into this passage. This is Esther 5. I'm going to read the 14 verses, 15 verses. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out, her, held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked again, asked, king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the 
king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching up to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before this text and we bring our lives to it. Um, Lord, I pray that you would minister to us, that you would guide us, that you would use me for good. Uh, bless us in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in preparation for this, I was listening to an interview with Nancy Guthrie and, uh, and another scholar by the name of Christopher Ash, and they do a, a study on how to read the Bible. And when it comes to the book of Esther, the first thing they said is, beware of moralizing. Beware of coming to this text and assigning our, a moral standard to the way they're living their lives. Um, and then he says this, he says, our instinct when we read an Old Testament story is to cheer when we think somebody has done something good or to boo when we think they've done something bad, a little bit like pantomime. But unless the narrator indicates that they want us to approve or disapprove of something, that may not be the point of it. And very often they're telling a bigger story. And what he's saying is we come with some moral judgments. We're trying to understand this story as best as we possibly can. And one of the ways that we do that is we assign moral value to the way that they're actually living. And what he's saying is if the author is not telling us to do that, then we should be wise and hold back a moral impression upon the figures in the story. Why? Because God might be trying to tell us a different story, a bigger story. And the bigger story in this particular chapter is a story of power. And the power dynamics that are at work between these particular individuals and the story that's being played out before us. And when we assign a moral judgment upon anyone, that is an act of power. And so when we do that, we might be saying more about ourselves than we are about God. Right? More about our desire to control, about our desire to, to have power in some sense, in some, in some way in the world. And so let's be careful not to do that. Let's be careful not to just merely moralize in this passage. But what we do see here is power dynamics are at work. 
Uh, most of the time, of course, when we talk about power dynamics, what's inferred is that there's something negative about power that's being used in the world. Power is used to oppress people. People live under the thumb of others. Some are, uh, don't have access to power. We're aware of all of these things. These things we've, this conversation probably was less talked about maybe 15 years ago, less talked about 10 years ago, and has been all the conversation for us for good in the last four or five years in our country. If we think about the Me Too movement and post-George Floyd, we could go on and on. Power dynamics are very important for us as human beings to be aware of, and especially for communities in which I'm involved. And I say that because as a white guy in the world who has had some measure of privilege, it's very easy, especially if you have a, a church that's led by a white male, to, to not talk about power dynamics as much. Now I'll talk a little bit more about that later, okay? So this is all about power dynamics. And of course, when we think about power, we think it negatively that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? We're familiar with that phrase. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but there's a flip side to power. And that is, is that power in God's design was actually meant to empower and to protect other people. And so as we look at Esther and Xerxes and Haman in this palace, let's consider power. Uh, let's, ex let's consider the experience of power, the potential of power, and the promise of power. Okay, first, the experience of power. Oh, man. Everyone's relationship to power is different. Everyone's relationship to power is unique. And you have these three individuals here in this passage that have led unique lives, different lives. You have a king, you have uh, a kind of head of state, and then you have Esther. Now, the king was born into power. He was born into privilege. And if you've been tracking with the story, you see he doesn't quite understand the power that he has. And therefore, he's reckless and careless with the power. He gives it away. Uh, so that people can just like him rather than tending and superintending his power for the greater good. Uh, Haman has earned this power. Haman has risen up through the ranks, and you can imagine that he's done it by strategizing, manipulating through sheer force, grit, determination. He's functioning out of some particular story in which he needs to assert his power even at the expense of others. And so he rises to the top and the king recognizes his powers, his skills, and he gives him a lot of power. And then you have Esther. Esther's come to this position of queen by, by chance, by the hidden hand of God. She is the least powerful person in the room in this way. She is a woman in a patriarchal culture. She is a Jewish exile living in a Persian society and so she is a person who is powerless and yet in the passage it's clear she's the most powerful person in the room she's the most powerful person in the room this king and a head of state she manipulates the or I shouldn't say that she persuades them she uses her powers to direct them to where she wants them to be. She's the most powerful person in the room, and yet her experience of power, I think if we look at it, is something that you and I probably can relate to, though many of us, probably none of us, have ever been in that particular situation. 
So what is her experience with power? Well, first, she's very intentional and deliberate in what she does. What does it say? She puts on the robe. She positions herself in a place so that the king can see her. When she's in the king's presence, she guides, she directs. She uses her agency. She's very powerful in that, in that sense. And you know that she's powerful because he offers her half the kingdom. She says, meet me here. He says, when? She says, meet me over there. She says, I'll, he says, I'll go. She's powerful. She's very deliberate. And so in one sense, this plan is working. The one who is disempowered is now beating them at their own game. She's using, uh, she's turning the tables on them. And that is probably, on some level, a very exhilarating feeling. So she's deliberate in her power. But there's got to be a tremendous amount of pressure on her. Because you remember in the previous chapter, Mordecai, her uncle, her friend, her mentor, said you need to go before the king and persuade him and reveal the plot of Haman to kill all the Jews in Susa. And if you don't, your family will perish. We'll all perish. And she comes to a, a resolution where she says, if I perish, I perish, but I will go to him. Right. And so I say all that to say the stakes are so high. She has to be the most powerful person in the world. If she fails, she dies. If she fails, her people die. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure for, for her here. Um, she feels pressure all around from those she loves and from those she loathes. And she's also filled with uncertainty. And I think we see this in the two banquet strategy. Most commentators have no idea why she's able to say, get Haman and bring him. We'll have a banquet. And then I'll tell you my request. And then Haman comes. They're ready. And they say, what is your request? And she basically repeats the same thing. And what commentators are suggesting is, is that as bold and courageous as she is, she's at a loss for words. She's afraid. She doesn't quite know what to do next she doesn't she she's she's uncertain and lastly not only do i think there's an experience of being intentional and deliberate and and experiencing some some pressure and feeling uncertainty but she must in some sense feel compromised now we don't want to impose our modern sensibilities on this ancient person uh, we don't know for certain if she's pricked in her conscience about uh, using her body and her her abilities in this way to persuade these two men. Um, but we do know this, that what she's doing and being suggestive and, being, um, and seeking to please these two men would be completely against her culture. And so I think in some real sense, that she is probably feeling not just pressure, not just feeling awkward and uncertain, um, but also feeling compromised in what she's doing. That she feels compelled uh, to go against uh, her nature, that she's challenged in her conscience, and that she goes against the culture. But why does she do all of that? She does it for the greater good. 
she does it for the greater good. And I think we can recognize that Esther's experience may never, we ne may never experience that, but we may experience her experience of power. And I think what we can learn is to be the most powerful person in the room is a pretty powerless feeling in some sense. But to have that kind of power is actually to be incredibly vulnerable. Incredibly vulnerable. The stakes are so high. Um, to be the most powerful person in the room isn't necessarily one of strength or confidence or wisdom. No matter how intentional she was, she was susceptible. She had great friends. She also had great enemies. We may be a person of vision, but you may not have the courage to live it out. Or maybe you have the courage and the vision, but you don't have the language. Or maybe you have courage, vision, language, but you have no proximity. You have no access to the power, right? We may have uh, wrestled with feelings of that somehow we're compromised in what we're doing and the things we're being asked to do and our willingness to do it. And so what do we do? We push those things down out of some sense of a greater good. Or maybe we're in work that feels totally dehumanizing, where there's no dignity, to, or you, there's a sense that there's no dignity in the way that you work or what you're being asked to do. And yet you push it down because there is some greater good in your narrative that doing these particular things will accomplish. And so to experience power is to recognize that being the most powerful person in the room is not all that it's backed up to be. And no matter how powerful you are, you need help. You need help. So, we find ourselves in a position, of, oh, what do I say? If you suddenly find yourself in a position where you need to assert your power, let's remember this, that we need help, that it may not feel like you thought it would feel to be, that, to have that kind of power. And if you're close to someone who's in a position of power, especially those who are in a circumstance like Esther, and they are around, what does it look like for you and I to empathize before we go down the path to demonize? Second point. So there's the experience of power, but there's the possibility of power. Uh, as I said, we're talking about power dynamics. Uh, we often think about power from the negative, but there is a flip side to power. God has given human beings agency, not so that we sit on the sidelines, but that we enter into the game, so to speak, and utilize power for good. To utilize power for change, to protect people, to empower other people. If you're in a position of power, there are there are reasons for you being there that may serve your own personal narrative. And yet the reason God has you there is to empower and protect those around you. Where do we see that? Well, it starts at the very beginning. We're talking about the potential for power. And at the very beginning, the reason there's a potential power, the potential for power in us as human beings is because that's God's purpose for us as human beings. In the beginning, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, which is a powerful image, 
He created male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful. Exercise your agency. Multiply. Uh, replenish the earth. These are words describing uh, active agency in the world, utilizing your power, and subdue it. I mean, can you imagine a more powerful word than subdue? Well, maybe. Dominion. <laughs> Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And so our first parents, they had power. They had unreal power to subdue the earth, had dominion over creation. They probably, in my mind, if I think about it, they must have been wondrous creatures. Wondrous creatures. And yet, uh, they were wondrous creatures to what? To do what? To cultivate, to nurture, to flourish in their authority. But what happened, right? They chose to be their own gods. They chose to live out of a smaller story. And in so doing, uh, what was once effortless to them, what, what must have been so uh, life-giving to them to exercise this power, all of a sudden becomes pain and heartache and toil. And it becomes one of the great struggles, not only of their lives, but ours too. Uh, Andy Crouch said this about what we need to discover about power. He says, it is both better and worse than we could imagine. Life is power. Power is life. And flourishing power leads to flourishing life. Of course, like life itself, power is nothing, worse than nothing without love. But love without power is less than it was meant to be. Love without the capacity to make something of the world without the ability to respond to and make room for the beloved's flourishing is frustrated love. Now, here's, here's the the meat. Yet it is the way of the world that the very thing that makes us fully human at our best is what most truly corrupts us at our worst. Power at its worst is the unmaker of humanity, breeding inhumanity in the hearts of those who wield power, denying and denouncing the humanity of the ones who suffer under power. And that depiction there is a great description of Haman. We talked about moralizing uh, and, the, and the encouragement not to do that unless otherwise directed by the author. And the author clearly creates, not doesn't create this character, but um, describes this character, this person, uh, in a way that we are supposed to see how inhuman he actually is, how fallen he actually is, how inhuman people can actually become. And how fallen we all can function. And so what we see with him is this one who had power. And I say because his story is too small. He's less than the human he was created to be. And the power that he actually has can never actually satisfy him. That's why when he sees Mordecai, his only critic, standing at the gate, he cannot stand that he's actually alive. And so he seeks to have him killed. And so the possibility of power is that it can lead to human flourishing. And so what is that experience like? Well, we all talk about flourishing in the culture, and yet it's kind of hard to put our finger on what exactly human flourishing is. And what the New Testament tells us is that every culture, 
at every time and place has a description of what flourishing looks like. But the New Testament also says that the kind of flourishing that cultures usually describe is not what flourishing actually really is. That there's a kind of life that we all sort of uh, assent to or, or work towards, and yet the New Testament says that, uh, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 6, um, that that is that, uh, that Paul says in 1 Timothy, he, Paul encourages Timothy not to the life that the culture is describing, but to the life, to the, to the life that is actually, that leads to life. Sorry, I said that so funky. So what the New Testament describes is that there is a life that really isn't life, and there's a flourishing that really isn't flourishing. And so it's helpful for us, it's necessary for us to understand what is true flourishing? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it mean to flourish and to exercise our agency, to exercise our power in, in a way that really does lead to life? And Andy Crouch, who we just mentioned, has written extensively on this, and I found him to be really helpful. Uh, and what he essentially says is true power is to be both strong and weak at the exact same time. To lean into strength and to lean into vulnerability at the exact same time. And so let me just define the terms as he defines them. He says authority is when you have the capacity for meaningful action. When you have the ability by your presence, your expertise, you have the capacity to make a meaningful difference in the lives of those around you, in the systems that you inhabit, wherever you are, whoever you are. To exercise your authority is to, is to have the capacity for meaningful action. Well, what's meaningful action? Well, he says, meaningful action is derived from a story that's bigger than your own. A story that has a past, a present, and a future that makes sense internally, that makes sense in the heart, that makes sense in the head. Capacity for meaningful action is derived from a particular story. But what about vulnerability? Vulnerability, he says, is not just emotional or personal transparency, because when we're emotionally vulnerable, when we're emotionally transparent, that can actually be highly manipulative, right? We use our emotions to gain power. So what he's actually talking about is vulnerability as an exposure to meaningful risk. That you exercise your authority in such a way that it just might cost you. Exposure, he says, is, uh, or excuse me, to be vulnerable means you have the potential to be wounded. It means the distinct possibility of loss. Hmm. And we're not talking about silly risks over e easily replaceable things, but the potential for the loss of self. A few years ago, uh, I, a friend of a friend of mine, a congregant, uh, set, asked, uh, came and, and was talking about a problem that, that this person was having at work. I'm saying this clunkily because this person's here. So, um, so this woman who's sitting over here. Uh, called and she said, I'm having this problem at work. I'm, I'm an independent contractor. I've been asked to work on a particular project and this project and this company's, uh, this company's mission, it pricks my conscience. I don't feel comfortable working in the capacity to bring about what they're trying to do. She says, but I'm an independent contractor and I don't have any real say in this, 
if they don't want to use me, then I will lose my job. So she prayed about it. And she talked with her husband about it. And they went and she ended up going to her boss and saying, I, I don't think I can out of my own conscience work for this particular company. And she was expecting to be let go. Uh, the boss went back and said and talk, told them that she wasn't available. And they came back and they said, well, we really want her. And so she went back and prayed more, talked, called me, uh, called and talked with her husband. And she went back and she said, no, I'm, I can't take this job. And so the manager said, okay, well, I'll, I'll get back to you. But what he really did is he went and he got back to the company and he said to his bosses, she doesn't want to work for this company for these particular reasons. And they said, well, maybe we don't want to work for that company either. And so if I'm remembering the story correctly, so not only did she, uh, they not take the job, she didn't take the job and she was able to remain with the company. So why do I say all of that experience? Because here's a person who's exercising their authority no, for the greater good, knowing there's real risk, real risk, real risk. So we also see those same parallels with Mordecai and Esther, don't we? And this is to the third point. And so there is a, there is the um, experience of power, the potential for, for power, then also the promise of power. Mordecai and Esther are functioning in this story based on a promise. Based on a promise. And that promise is, is an invitation to act. And if you don't act, God will send somebody else to act. And we can read that as shame. Or we can read that as, my child, you are part of a bigger story. You're being invited to be human in a greater way. You're being invited to be a part of a story of redemption. Come and be a part of it. But if you don't do it, God is still committed to you. God still loves you. So come, join, be a part of the purposes of God. And so what does Mordecai do? Mordecai saves the king who eventually wants to kill him. Why? Because he's operating out of a narrative of his own great, of, of greater good, of what God's doing in the world. So he risks his own skin to go and save this particular king. Then he stands at, uh, then he, excuse me, then he refuses to bow to Haman. Why? Because Haman is a man, an evil man. All right? So he exercises authority. He exercises his vulnerability. Then he goes to the gate. Eventually, when that edict is decried, a decreed and that all the Jews are going to be killed in the next 11 months. He goes in sackcloth and ashes. He exercises his authority and he laments before the whole kingdom. Authority and vulnerability, strong and weak at the same time. And of course, Esther's doing that too. Esther's standing there completely vulnerable, exercising authority for this greater narrative, out of this greater narrative. And so when she does, when she functions in this way, then we get to this place where 
she's so vulnerable that she actually, we begin to see her vulnerability, right? She plans two banquets on the fly. She plans this vulnerability in some, some way, we might say, she's failed. In some way, there, she might be thinking between those two banquets, I had the chance, I had this moment, and there's regret. But between the two banquets, what do we see? We see God at work. Because Mordecai goes home, and his sin and ugliness and selfishness is revealed, and his own people say, put up a pole 50 cubits high so that all the world can see your enemy hanging on it. See, that happened between the two events. That happened as, a, you know, like God works within our foibles and our failed plans. God works in our, in our imperfect agency, in our, in, in our true vulnerability. And of course, what happens? It's in the next chapter. But in the next chapter, it's Haman that is actually on that pole. And what that is, is the justice of God coming down into the fallenness of the world. And that's hard for us to experience. It's hard for us to see that kind of power enacted. But remember when Mordecai says, if you fail to act, God will provide another way. God will provide another way. And there's a picture there of God's judgment on evil for the greater good of, of the world. And that picture is best seen and, and interpreted in the cross of Jesus. Because in the cross of Jesus, you have a righteous man impaled on a pole. But you know what the New Testament says is that Jesus became sin. Jesus, in other words, became Haman. Why? So that all the world, so all, not just the kingdom of Susa, but all the world could be free. Jesus, Esther is a type of Jesus. Esther exercises her authority and is totally vulnerable. But Jesus is the epitome of power incarnate in the world and the epitome of vulnerability in the world. Jesus purposely goes to the cross to lose the power, to be vulnerable, to receive the judgment that all of us uh, deserve, right? So that we can be free. So that we can actually live in a... So that we can actually have the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus dies on the cross as a payment for evil, and because of that, his righteousness is given to the rest of the rest of the, of his people. And so with that in mind, let me just give us three things. Oh, let me just say this really, really quickly. You know, in the Old Testament, the Messiah was going to be the one that freed his people. And everybody was waiting for the Messiah to come. And when Jesus came, there was so much commotion around him, wondering who this figure is. Who is this one with such power, with, with such vulnerability? And Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says something interesting. He doesn't just say, you're the Messiah. He says, you're God's Messiah. And I think what that means is, is that we all have our own Messiahs in life. 
we have our relationships or we have our work. Uh, we have identities that we live into that we think are actually going to save us. But they won't. And so we have plans that we put before us that we think, you know, finally one day this is going to save, save me. And yet Peter says, you're God's Messiah. You're not mine. You're God's deliverance for me. Um, that in Jesus, we, we have the safety and the security in the flourishing that we all always look for. Um, he's God's Messiah. And so three things very quickly before we close. First, we need to recognize our power. That's what I was sort of talking about, being the kind of church that we are, the, uh, the kind of privilege that many of us have experienced. We can very easily stop talking about power because we don't see how much power we actually have in the world. And we kind of live as those who are running out of power. But for many of us, that is not the case. And the world will always bring you into the palace. And so we have to be aware of the kind of power that we hold. And we always have to talk about power dynamics. We need to do it more and more. We need to remember that we live in a, in a city that has what's called a high power. Uh, it's called high. It's a high, high powered. What's it called? High in a high power society. High power. Power is demonstrated through distance. Right up in the palace, up in the penthouse. But there's another kind of power that's called a low power distance, and that is people who have tremendous amount of power but downplay that power. Right? What Kanye West said, billionaires don't wear chains, millionaires wear chains. Right? And so for those of us, we're in a low power church. Keep it casual, keep it cozy, keep it comfortable. There's a lot of power in this room. We need to wield it well. Third, or the second thing, mere moral, moralizing is never the answer. Mere moral, moralizing in the culture is a foul, false power because it identifies the problem without hope for a cure. It minimizes the people. It minimizes their experience. Humans have a tendency to see the world as the good guys and the bad guys, but God sees all people everywhere in need of rescuing. The powerful and the powerless. We need hope. We need intervention. And therefore, when we look at the world, it is on. Um, and therefore, when we look at the world, we need to recognize the distance between us and others and to overcome that. And then lastly, as a community, it's imperative that we be radically accessible to other people. Um, as you know, that we have a, a store, a, a space in, this, in the neighborhood in which we just give to the community. And the reason that we do that is to close the gap between uh, our neighbors and ourselves. You know, God calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. That's the kind of power we've been liberated to do, to exercise our authority and vulnerability in those particular relationships. In a storefront space like neighbor, which is just giving thousands and thousands of hours, not out dollars, hundreds of hours, just so that neighbors can use this space, is an opportunity for us to sort of break down the walls between the church and the culture. You know, that space is built for a modern sensibility, 
It's not a big fortress church that looks like uh, like a like a castle built for a culture that looks to God and says, "He is my mighty fortress." No, this is built for a community that needs to be able to see into a Christian community authentically, truly, to hold us accountable, to remove all barriers. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of power. The scriptures say that you have put all things under the feet of Jesus, and yet at the same time you say, your followers will reign with him. I don't even know fully how to comprehend that, Lord. But I thank you, Lord, that you have called us to something great and that you walk with us to help us figure it out. Lord, we're imperfect, but you are, your love is perfect. And I pray that it continues to transform us. We need it as much as anyone uh, so that we can be a blessing to this city that we love. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.